Go ahead, Ray. You! You worthless pieces of slime! You ignorant, disgusting clown! Nothing but an unstable short chain molecule! It's the stuff. It's like pure concentrated evil. And it's all flowing right to this spot. Material devolution has begun. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be with you this evening in beautiful San Diego. This is the Material Devolution Podcast. It's going to be an exploration of current trends in the modern media, examined through the prism of very, very deep cultural critique. We're going to be going beneath the surface to find out what's really happening in these stories, and not just what the media is telling us, but what the root causes are, and what we can maybe do to address these causes. I mean, it's important just to have this discussion. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Matt Walter. It's a pleasure to, to be able to do this with you, Matt. Thank you, Devin. And uh, it's happy to be here and share my views and uh, our views and talk a little bit about uh, these current trends and, uh, you know, dissect them a little bit, evolve them, so to speak. That's right, Matt. I mean, that's really the, uh, no pun intended, material devolution point of the show. We're going to take material and devolve it, look backwards through how it got to where it is now, because nothing really truly is what it ever tells you it is. You know, there's always a root of a story. We're so far right now in the human endeavor that every story has a root that goes very far back, so it's important to break those down. So, Matt, you had a story that was interesting to you this week. Why don't you talk about it for a little, and we'll see, uh, we'll see what your thoughts are and what, where you wanted to go with it. Yeah, Devin, and uh, this story has uh, some deep roots, and uh, especially uh, with me, it hits straight uh, home. Uh, I spent a little time in the Middle East, and uh, you know now President Obama is asking for uh, you know war powers uh, and uses the war powers resolution, uh, asking Congress uh, for approval. And I uh, just read that Congress might be a little hesitant to do so, which is a shocker. Uh, I was really thinking that uh, you know we were uh, re- uh, ready to go, lock cocked, and uh, you know ready to send some people over there. But uh, you think that's a political move, though? You know, I don't. I don't know. I, it's hard to say. Um, maybe it is. Maybe it's uh, you know showing a little bit of concern, and you know. But it's ironic that people who have typically been the most hawkish when it comes to military action. Now in a time of political upheaval, trying to find some base for their party and a way to compete against the Democrats, now they're the anti-war party all of a sudden. Right, yeah, that's what's... There's something ironic there, right? That is ironic, but, you know, it it could be a play. I mean, the presidential election is coming up, and if they jump into it uh, very, very quickly, um, it could just, uh, you know, shock a lot of the people who are a little bit gun-shy when it comes to uh, war, because it has been a prolonged war. We've been in war for a long time now. Uh, technically still are, you know, we uh, just fly robots in the air and bomb kids now, so no big deal. Yeah, I mean, I would say though that in this case the logistics of the war powers he's requesting are very different. It's, it's not as before uh, what we were doing specifically in Iraq or Afghanistan previously. It's much more limited engagement. There's a timetable with a fixed leave point, I believe it's three years. It's only a fixed set of advisors, really, primarily special forces. There's still no ground troops whatsoever. So it's one of those situations still where what do you do when you've thrown yourself in quicksand and there's no one to pull you out? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, this is definitely something that is spawned from our own engagement in the Middle East and, uh, you know, our political uh, football, so to speak, uh, that we play over there. And, uh, 
you know, this is a byproduct of that, uh, that vacuum and that disturbance that we've created. I mean, look, uh, you know, you have warring tribes in these areas and those are those, uh, you know, were paid by us to not fight each other while we were there. And then when we leave and, you know, nobody has money and, the, you know, everything falls into chaos. And that's exactly where we're at. Well, right a, a lot of people would argue. I mean, I've been listening to an old edition of Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and he argued that it made sense to bribe these people because that's how things are done in this part of the world. They're bribes. They, they, these are the most corrupt parts of the world for a reason. They're very tribal. Tribal people are more corrupt because they're under a less microscope by the community. They're held to a different standard. There's much more privacy and secrecy and cultural respect for elders and people in positions of power than maybe there are in the Western societies where we look at things with a little bit more of a... not as rose-colored of a lens, let's say. You know, maybe more of a brown-colored lens. We're always looking for, you know, what are they, well, what's the real thing they're trying to push right now? Right, right. But getting back to these uh, these tribal uh, shakes and, and things, um, you know, they don't want peace. Uh, they need a reason to exist. So you have to understand that uh, they need trouble from their neighbors uh, in order to validate their leadership uh, within the community, because that's the very most easy way for them to, you know, actually uh, impose, you know, like I said, their, their validity uh, upon their people. I mean, this is an interesting subject for me to ask you about. I know it's very personal because, you know, you said you were in Iraq and I don't you want to talk about it too much, but Matt was actually a soldier in Iraq. He wasn't, you know, just there, a journalist or humanitarian. He was a soldier. So as a soldier, uh, if you don't mind talking just a little, what was it like for your engagement with the population and what their response was to how you could deal with them? Was it a lot of corruption, bribery? You had to, like, basically give them things to get them to help you? Like, what, what, what was the situation from your perspective? No, it wasn't really much like that with, with me because, um, you know, I was in a, a combat unit. I was a scout um, with the 3rd uh, uh, Armored Cavalry um, and a killer troop. And uh, we lived in a dam on the Euphrates River for a little while. And we didn't have much real interaction with the population, except for a couple of kids at the uh, at the gate when we were in Ramadi. And uh, I just saw that there was uh, some heavy fighting going on in Ramadi today, uh, which is uh, which is interesting. Not not atypical of of Iraq. There's actually fighting going on all the time. We just don't hear about it. Right, you know, like right. every day, pretty much people are getting killed there for the most random things possible yeah exactly but you know for my most part uh you know we did a lot of traffic control points and things uh going in and out of the city and uh from what i noticed is that most of the people were very simple people they didn't really understand uh, a lot about nationalism in iraq and those type of things i mean uh you know you can see uh goat herders and things like that you know walking through the desert um at any given time um Completely random, might I add. Sometimes you just uh, roll up on some on some guys just hanging out in the middle of the desert, which is really interesting to me. Um, but again, it's like a nomadic culture. It always has been. It's not uh, very. Um, it's not like here, and so we can't really think of it as such. You know, it's funny because it wasn't always like. And this point always gets brought up too. I mean, there was a point where it was Mesopotamia. It was the cultural center point of the world. And then it got destroyed by the by was it the uh, the Persians initially or the Moors? Yeah, I would have to definitely look that up. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it it used to be like Baghdad and that part of the world. It used to be Mesopotamia for pretty much art and science and all these things. I think like thirteen, fourteen hundreds, and so it's weird now that it's reverted back to this. 
but you know it could be a case where like society takes such a large cultural shock because of war that you know hits the reset point back to like the roots of humanity yeah I, I i find that interesting as well i think what happened though honestly is that i think um you know by nature i think that islam uh is like an agrarian type of society and i think that when it flourishes uh you know even um you know after when what you're speaking of but you know uh islam in general um and then <clears throat> when industrialization happened in the west and uh in europe uh you know they kind of got left behind and then it becomes like a socioeconomic issue and i i really think it's an education issue that we have and a socioeconomic issue that we have the plight of the people in the middle east uh you know cause these disturbances and um, you're spot on and you know and then and then, and then what happens is is that you know they don't have any hope or any any type of things i mean you see those correlations uh you know break out uh in ferguson and uh in other places of the world um you know i would uh say gaza um you know being oppressed and uh, then everybody gets mad at them for firing rockets too so it's pretty interesting the dynamic across the world um where you have unrest and you have these uh you know these socioeconomic uh issues uh that really are taking hold of, of those things yeah and when you look at who the historically most reliable diplomats and partners and allies for the united states have been in the arab world it's been the ones that have been flush with cash Right. And, uh, you know, um, some of them have, uh, you know, old money, so to speak, and some of them have new money. So uh, it's uh, very advantageous for us. Obviously. And, and, you know, that's the thing. It's like you look at Osama bin Laden or somebody like that who was, you know, born a multimillionaire, sent to learn in Western schools. He's being founded by this country. It's funny that the inspiration for all these poor countries to come after us came rooted in the rich countries trying to push this agenda. Of the Muslim world revert it back yeah so yeah I mean that's that it that is I, I think it's I think it's very interesting I, I find it even more interesting that you have you know these um, you know different factions of, uh, of Islam um, you know working um, separately maybe um, in conjunction definitely in their message uh, and you know they're uh, you know like what I really find interesting about it is that they're pulling people from the Western world to go fight with them. I mean, you've heard about this, right? That they're able to do this. Yeah, that, you know? There's been like, like that, hundreds of foreigners from around the world. Like people are falling for the marketing campaign, so to speak. But I mean, that's a very interesting phenomena, like the phenomena of global jihad. Sam Harris has been in the media a lot recently, personal hero of mine talking about it and you know, it's a very interesting recent phenomenon. It's not something that's gone on until recently. And now you're seeing it more and more, especially because of mass media. They're able to reach out to a larger network of people. And these ideas are resonating with some people. It seems like there's just something rooted dark in the heart of man when he, he feels oppressed and he has a vision for how the world should be. And there's just a certain subset of people who react in that certain way. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely. That's that's something true. I pulled up something here about the history of Baghdad, just the Baghdad itself. So, you know, obviously it's, um, you know, gone through some changes in evolution, uh, you know, since you know the times, uh, you know, that it's uh, uh, had the uh, the tower and, and things like that. And so it says here that uh, it was founded in the eighth century and became the capital of the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. 
uh, which um, it evolved into a significant cultural, commercial, and intellectual center for the Islamic world. And, you know, that being said, in itself, you know, the center of learning is it has this reputation as center of learning worldwide. Um, you know, you have to really ask yourself, you know, why it turned into the, the chaos and, and the things that it was. I mean, how did it get to the Crusades? Back, the back to the dictatorships and the things like this? Um, you know, you know, there's a long history for most of the world and even modern society. You know, most societies are dictatorships under the guise of democracy. Yeah, you know they—they they, well, yeah. they, they, they really are. It's like you're allowed to have certain cultural decisions based on the society you're born in. You're given a limited amount of range. But how many societies have really overhauled their constitutions or really done things like that? Usually, it's somebody like Greece, where when the bottom falls out, everyone loses their mind and they're like, "Okay, we're going to change the script." Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to push back and we're going to reverse some of these decisions that we're going to make. And, you know, the people get fed up. But see, that was a true, you know, it's interesting that Greece being the, 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 the founder of the Republic and the democracy, right, is that it actually used democratic means to elect somebody who was going to change the way the country operated for the better of the people, which is really, really, really interesting that they are actually following through on that message. And they've been out and actually lobbying, you know, the EU to that they're changing and they're not going to have austerity anymore. And they're going to, they're not doing these things. Um, and I find that very, very interesting. Um, you know, Greece is, uh, you know, they don't make anything, but they, they can sure buy it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, hopefully they do rebound. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. For sure, no doubt. Um, but anyway, you know, we are talking about Baghdad. We are talking about ISIS. Uh, you know, let's talk about ISIS. Let's make no mistake about ISIS. The I, or I, is, it, is it ISIS or ISIL? It's funny that they always like care so much about what to call it. Like, yeah, you know? I find that interesting. I don't know the ISIL, ISIS. I it's like okay. ISIS. It sounds a little bit more twenty uh, uh, first century. When I first heard ISIL, I thought it was like a play on words, like ice hole. You know? <laughs> like, like, like. <laughs> But I, I guess awesome. I, I guess it, that's what I really thought when I first heard it, but apparently not. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, fitting. It is. It's fitting. I, I think it's. Uh, I'm gonna go with ISIS um, because uh, if we're gonna go to war with them, that is where it's going to be. But how can you go to war with a group of people with an idea who are defined as extremists? Because yeah. extremists will always exist in different forms, and these happen to be extremists who are driven to violence for different reasons. But there'll always be different extremists driven to violence. In this case, they're driven to the most horrific types of violence possible. Everyone's seen, if they haven't seen the videos, they've heard about, you know, videos of burnings and beheadings and shootings and all this horrifying stuff. And, you know, it's funny. This got brought up by one of these crazy guys who's, you know, an insane criminal. But you can't argue with this point to a degree, which is, you know, we care so much when one person gets their head cut off. But we don't when 30 people get blown up in a bomb somewhere we've never heard of and we don't see it happen and it's not in the media getting blown in our face every day. Like these are people that are our friends and neighbors and parts of our community and people we should care about. It's the other. It's happening over there to somebody else who whether or not they deserve it, it's just their bad luck to be in that situation. We don't really resonate with them. We don't empathize, I, I think. Yeah, truly. I mean, uh, they don't look like you. Um... Then. They do though. They 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 do. Like they're people. 
They really do. But like, it's putting through that lens of like, this isn't something that resonates with people or people want to hear about or think about in that way. That you know, if everyone's just equal, then why is it that we don't care so much when one person we've never met who's an American gets his head cut off? We're ready to go to war. Everyone's posting on Facebook. There's hashtags trending, this, that. Yet every day there's a suicide bombing or uh, a drone attack in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq where 10 innocent kids or civilians are killed. And maybe it kills a few terrorists with them too. But that doesn't say anything about the innocent people who are killed and the new terrorists that spawns either. Well, listen, man. We live in an, in an isolated, insulated bubble. I mean, you got to look at what happens at a news level, the media, the news media, and how much international news we are actually exposed to. Now, if you dig a little deeper and you do your internet, internet research and things like that, you can find, you know, uh, democracy now. Now it does have a left-leaning slant, but at the same time, it does give you a very diverse, a very global perspective of what is going on. Um, it has different stories being run. They don't pander to you either. They treat you like you're an intelligent person who can think for themselves. You know, right? That's why and, I like uh, that show. Disclaimer: We don't get any money from Democracy Now. They <laughs> are a uh, they are a nonprofit organization, and uh, you can donate to them. But uh, anyway, uh, moving forward, <clears throat> um, you know. About ISIS, my, my thing is, don't get me wrong, I am a soldier, and at first when ISIS was, you know, making moves in Iraq and doing their things and starting to hit, uh, you know, our news, I was against any action to ISIS. I was like, you know, I, is it really our responsibility? Is it really our responsibility? I mean, should more Americans be over there and, 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 and die and, and fight and, you know, for this other place? And, you know... The truth of the matter is, is I am to the point now where I am like, that's the only way with those people. Like we have to make a, a statement and we have to do it with a, a, a lot of force and, and do it and get it over with. So, but we just talked about a little bit earlier, the fact that there's, you know, it's the issue of global jihad and there's been literally almost like a hundred, if not more cases of foreign citizens, like at least like 15, 20 different countries leaving and trying to go to or actually successfully getting to Iraq to fight for ISIS. So if there's that type of fervent support for it outside of the country, then what does that say about the support for it inside the country? Because that becomes the question itself. When we mistake a very small percentage of the minority that's in action for being completely separate from the entire majority that isn't participating, there might be for the entire the, there might be one percent of the, there might be let's say less than a one percent, but let's just say it's one percent of the people in Iraq who are fighting for ISIS right now, where Iraqis or foreigners who joined them. Let's just say it's one percent for the sake of argument, and there's ninety nine percent of people who aren't fighting for them. They aren't shooting missiles or guns or doing any type of violence. But could that one percent exist if some percentage, a large percentage at least, of that ninety nine percent didn't allow them to exist? Don't you think they're, like, just scared? Are they scared? I don't know. They're, they're pretty freaking ruthless, dude. Like, even, like... I mean, obviously... Basically hey, obviously, obviously the women are scared. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean, like, but, let's just, but, like but are the men scared? I don't think they are scared. I don't. I don't think the men are scared. I think the men, a large percentage of them, who are there, it might not be a majority, but there's a large percentage who support the idea of Sharia law. There is. There, there's this guy, Ali, uh, God, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently, 
and he's writing a book called The Atheist Muslim. He was a Muslim in Saudi Arabia, and he talked about how when people got their hands cut off or decapitated, you know, in the public square, kids would run up, there'd be hundreds of people, they'd be cheering and, and you know, laughing and enjoying the festivities of it. This isn't something where it's a foreign idea and people are trotted out there and they're horrified and this is a very like they're in the gulags situation of Russia and everyone's just depressed about it. This is a joyous culture. They, they've festivated this love of violence and celebration of violence and righteous violence as a form of self-expression essentially. That's how they feel they make impact in the world and you know what? They're right. That is how they make impact in the world. So the question becomes how do we change somebody's idea of how to make impact of the world. Well, let's go even deeper than that. How do you change somebody's interpretation of faith? I don't think you can, right? I mean, that's... It, it's a cultural thing on such a massive scale. How can you culturally evolve somebody without, like, drugging them or just allowing it to happen? It either happens or it doesn't, right? Yeah, I mean, that's really that's really the, the, the issue at bay here. I mean, like... You're absolutely right, and 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 my solution, I it's it's terrible, it's crazy that I would even think that. It's like, you know, but we've gotten to the point now. I mean, these people are like the dregs of of the earth. I mean, it's like the the way that they interpret things, the way that they that they handle themselves, the way that they conduct their 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 activities. It's, it's hey, you're you're, you're you're spot on. But guess what? You know, in Boko Haram, in in, well, Af yeah. in Africa, I mean, there it was like two thousand kids schoolgirls and the schoolgirls were kidnapped and there's like 2000 kids killed and guess what it's africa there's no there's, there's nothing there for us we we didn't break it we weren't there originally there's no money in it we know africa always doesn't work out well for us whenever we've tried to help out sudan or libya or anywhere else before you know nobody wants a black hawk down situation again so what do we do it just gets ignored it doesn't get played on by the media but there's crazy terrorists who hate america just as much in tons of parts of africa in parts of Asia, and in other parts of the Middle East that aren't Iraq. But guess what? They don't have sovereign land, most of them. They're operating small tribal pockets where the larger society allows them to operate. It's just kind of an accepted cultural thing. They just move amongst the, uh, the, the peaceful people, and the peaceful people just hope that they don't become victims of like the violence that spills over to where they are. It's I'm, like kind of like a soccer game. It's like a, it's like a, it's like you know, 20, it's like 20 men running around a soccer field, like within these boundaries of the, uh, you know, peaceful uh, inhabitants of the area. And it just kind of migrates from here to there, or whatever. You just hope that your village doesn't get caught up in it, I guess. When Sam Harris talked about it, uh, he pitched the idea. Well, I mean, this isn't the famous Bill Maher incident with Ben Affleck. And he tried to explain it to Ben, though Ben obviously is just spitting out talking points, not knowing what he's doing, just reacting emotionally. But Sam laid it out very clearly, and it's tough to argue with his logic, that it's an idea of concentric circles of belief. There's more than one group of beliefs, but they all are somehow linked together in some root way. And that's where they're also supporting each other in some root way, because one isn't possible without the other. So at the very small subset, the 1% I hypothesized, the people who are actually doing violence, it's only 1%. But now there's the political support, and you can't argue that in all these countries from even democratic ones like Turkey, but in all these countries in the Middle East, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Libya, places like that, support for Sharia law and stuff like that is overwhelming. Overwhelming. It's like 70% in a lot of them. So 
let's just say arguably the people who won't shoot the missiles and the guns and blow up the planes, but they'll vote for the people who will and they'll cheer when it happens and they'll think it's a good thing. Let's say that group of people is 10% and that's conservative. Very conservative. It should be 20. Let's just do 20 even for that. Well, now you've got a larger group of people outside of that who they might not even politically support it and cheer for it, but they're indifferent to it. They feel that maybe Americans brought it on themselves or, you know, they're the invaders, so it's natural to want to defend your land, all this stuff. That's a larger circle, and there might even be some reasonably justified belief in that. But it's still leading to this events that keep happening over and over again. So let's say that's another 20%, so now you've got 40%. And then you've got an even a larger majority, and this is the majority. I'd probably say it's like 90%, this concentric circle. It's the group of Islam that they want nothing to do with ISIS and Sharia law. They think it's disgusting. They think, you know, it's horrifying. They'll stand against it. They'll fight against it. They'll, they'll join America in it. They're not opposed to us. They're not against us. And you're but, talking about globally. And I'm talking about globally. I'm talking right. about globally, all right. Muslims. Right. But they still hold very, very offensive and prehistoric beliefs about women, homosexuals, and science that are demeaning to humanity and our existence. And if we don't call them out on that, then we never stand in a chance of them improving. And this is where the concentric circles are linked to each other, because they aren't willing to self-analyze their thoughts on, on homosexuals and women's and women's rights and science and faith. They aren't willing to even have discussions on these ideas. It's an offensive to them to have these discussions. So because of that, now it's offensive to discuss why we're complicit and not concerned about what our leaders are doing. And then it becomes, well, if we're not concerned about our leaders, why aren't we concerned about the even crazier people who are supporting the leaders and helping them get elected and do that? Well, then it, it also starts going down, down the rabbit hole. It's offensive to draw pictures of Muhammad like the Charlie Hebdo thing, right? And so everything that is against it now becomes just completely offensive. There's not any questioning of the, there's no tolerance. That's really what it comes down to, that there's simply no tolerance for any questioning of anything that has to do with the religion at all. And, and for the most part, I mean, and that's where, or at least the extremists have made it as such. And so now, you know, where do you ask, do you ask the moderate Islamic uh, people, the moderate Muslims to act and stand up for you know, Islam in general and, and, and save the image that it, of, of the, of the I mean, religion itself? Think about it like this. And I mean, it's an interesting way to think about it. And I'm not sure what it says about us or about the way things are. And it's not to say one religion is better than another. No, no, that's or, not or what this we're is saying like that. at all. It's just, so it's just a way to think. nobody take yeah. any kind of But, uh, but know, it's just a way, it's just a way to think about it. It's not a, a battle of, of religious spaces. Yeah. We're not. But right, right now, let's understand, for example, and this is a thought exercise. You know, if you had somebody, and this has happened before, if somebody drew a picture of Jesus and he was, like, doing something incredibly offensive, like, let's say he was, like, he had money in his hand, like, it's the buddy Jesus from the famous Dogma movie with George mm -hmm. Carlin, you know, he's doing the thumbs up and he's taking the money. Right. And it, it could be even something worse than that. It could be Jesus, let's say he's, you know... You're, buying a prostitute. You're buying a prostitute or taking drugs or urinating in public or something what kind offensive. What of car would Jesus drive? What would, you what, what would the public reaction and the worldwide reaction from Christians be? They'd be offended. There'd be, there might be protests. There might be a boycott, a, 
At worst, you might get some death threats, probably. But nobody's going to suicide bomb you or kill you. Yet, if you draw a single picture of Muhammad, not even an offensive one, or let's say it is slightly offensive, you're making a political statement, but you're not demeaning him in any way, like the famous picture with the bomb on top of his turban, what's the reaction of the Muslim world? It's almost unanimous. It's not a small subsection. Because the small subsection of the Christian population, they react, they care. It's, you only hear the loudest people. Most people would be like, it's a cartoon. We didn't even see it and we don't care about it. We wouldn't know about it unless you told us about it because you were offended, right? Right. It would have just gone unnoticed. If your offense was just, this is stupid, and you closed the page and didn't care, that'd be one thing. It's another thing when you see it as a cultural resonance and you have to change it. And everyone has different reactions on how to do it. And right now, the Muslim world's reaction to any type of offense is to shut it down entirely. Like, across the board, across the broad. Yeah, well, that's when you're talking about free speech. Like, you know, that's what they did today with, you know, they went into in, 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 uh, in uh, Denmark and they, and they murdered, you know, uh, three cops today. I didn't hear you about know? that. Yeah, and it was at a free speech convention. They were looking for one. They were Islamists? Yeah, they were looking for one artist who uh, was from Sweden. I uh, forget his name. It, it, it was, you know, leaves me right now. But anyway, um, he had drawn uh, in 2007. He had drawn a, a picture of Muhammad, and uh, he has been on the Al Qaeda hit list for uh, some time. And uh, when he came back to Denmark, uh, two guys uh, they feel like they were just lone gunmen, lone wolves. I guess you would call. Them. Um, maybe they're associated, uh, you know, whatever, but they have been talking a lot about the fact that again, these guys, you know, their recruiting campaign is, uh, is very good and they get people in, you know, these cultures. And what's interesting is Denmark is one of those places that you'd think like nothing happens here because they really don't get into anything. But then you find out that they're actually helping out in the bombing campaign in Syria as well, um, which is interesting in itself. Um, but Anyway, yeah, to get back to it, it's all about free speech at that point, right? They just are, it's, it's intolerable. They cannot, they cannot do it. Well, the argument I made, a good friend of mine brought up some great points online on a Facebook discussion about it, a really smart guy. And he was arguing for some side, and I appreciated him being on the side because it let me think about it from the other perspective. He was arguing for a degree on the side of not justifying the murders or anything like that in the way, but just having the discussion about culturally how different it is for Muslims and Islam itself to take this criticism. We don't have any cultural barometer that matches theirs. You know, our response to satire is going to be so different from ours that we shouldn't be flame baiting them, essentially. You know, we shouldn't be trolling them for bad reactions. And that is, is a fair point. But my counter argument to him, which I think illustrates my point, is that it's all about context and levity. So it's one thing if there's a picture of Muhammad, you know, naked, getting shackled, getting, you know, beat down by an American soldier, getting humiliated, something like that. That's one thing. It's yeah, a, that's propaganda. It's, 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 an, it's, an, it's another thing to make a political cartoon that's culturally relevant in many different ways. The picture of Muhammad with the, the bomb on his turban. So let's, let's see. There's been a couple wars against Islam recently. There's been... Uh, exploding global jihad as a concept. Islam's the fastest growing religion in the world. Nobody can deny that you Islam can. is literally and figuratively exploding. So it's an obvious joke and it's not even a good one. It's actually a lame cartoon to me. <laughs> but that's the thing. It, 
for me, I treat it like it's Mad Max. It's a joke. It's something where it's like, I, I don't want to offend people with some stupid shit like this. Pardon my French, but it doesn't have any impact on me because I see how unimportant it is in the grand scheme of the world. They don't have this flip side where they're going to ever see anything as being Mad Max when it's something as benign as the new Charlie Hedbow cover, which is a picture of them forgiving them for murdering them. Yeah, Pardon. no doubt, no doubt. Um, yeah, that's that's that's. You make up a good point right there about the about the Hebdo thing. I mean, the the fact of the matter is is that it, it again comes down to the fact that it, you know it's it's tolerance and where and and why why why. But these why people does aren't willing. Happen? These people aren't willing to take satire as a concept. It doesn't exist culturally. But that's them. what I'm saying. Like, satire, so, okay, so satire, how... satire is looking at oneself through the prism of humor. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is, and they don't have any type of Western sense of humor about things. They don't, they don't want to have self-examination in their culture. Our culture is founded in this, like, let's look deeper. Let's always pull beneath the surface. Well, see, then it's like, that's the thing. You keep people in this rigid mindset, right? And your mind doesn't open and you don't have, explore these other ideas. Then it's easy to, uh, you know, to push one ideology and to keep that, you know, going and perpetuate Definitely. that in, in its entirety. But see what happens. See what this is. Now we're getting into something because see what happens when you do that. You get left behind. And that's what we were talking about before is the fact that it's a socioeconomic issue that they've been they've been oppressed over time. That you know it's a very harsh landscape. I mean, it looks like Tatooine, basically. I shit you not. Star Wars reference for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know you so they it, it's very harsh and distant. It's hard to live there. You know you have to fight for things, and and, and it's been warring for a long time. And so when you have that kind of cultural Closure, enclosure. You don't, you don't broaden, you don't grow. There's no innovation. There's no freedom of thought. People aren't going to the their computer and reading about the world and having a discussion. They are in the metropolitan areas. Like yes, in Baghdad, in the heart of Baghdad. They yes. Are. Let's make no mistake. But that was like a. You've got to understand. City. These aren't cities like the United States, where it's like downtown Chicago is amazing, and then it spreads out into suburbs and other little towns across the land. It goes from a somewhat metropolitan quasi-modern city something that is out of the stone ages yeah exactly i mean like, something that yeah, people yeah. can't Clay under huts, they, you I mean, can't wrap your hands around what it's like to have no running water no electricity you're living in a clay hut in the middle of the desert or you have electricity but it's very uh, sporadic uh, to say the least you know maybe you're wired like directly to like the high voltage cables running through the, the side of the desert or you, know? you you might even have technology but you don't even understand how to use it or what it means so everyone has a cell phone but, well, they know how to use cell phones. They make every, bombs every, explode with that stuff. Yeah, so but every, they got that under under control. Everyone has a cell phone, but how are they using it to learn about the world? It's like if you well, have if you have these tools, but you don't understand how to use them. It's a flip phone, man. I mean, you're talking about old stuff. I mean, you know, I don't know how it is now. I doubt that there's iPhones. I mean, you know, you're not talking about cultures that make you not know, widespread. No, no, they're, they're not getting iPhones. Right, you know, yeah. um, so you know, the fact of the matter is, man, is that it really comes down to the fact that. Um, you know, like I said, that the closed-minded, it's a closed society for the most part. I mean, it, it, not even for the most part, it's a closed society. It is because open societies integrate and closed societies don't. Right. And so, you know, with the, the dress and the, the way that they, they, that they dress going into, you know, Western society, some 
assimilate and some do you know conform and some do still practice the religion but maybe not as stringent and uh of a following but you also have you know people in the united states that look very very different and walk around very very different than the culture of the american culture you know yes we had some you know um america is the melting pot right right and at first it wasn't i mean let's let's be honest it's I mean, still, had, it's still italian though. the great the great myth is that you know the racism is over and and you know we forget that less than like 200 years ago 150 years ago there were slaves that's like two people's lifetimes like racism is still very new every major city has a chinatown a little Italy. Well, that's what I'm saying. So Everybody's now, still very ethnically segregated, and we're still all very aware. The first thing we notice and do is group together based on these things, usually. Well, it's comfortability level. People are afraid of things. Historically, of different historically things. speaking, if somebody was different from you, they didn't like you on the basis that they were different. It's a very modern idea for people to be like, you know what? It doesn't matter if somebody's different from me in any way, shape, or form. I'm just going to take them as an individual and then judge them based on that. Before it was always like very clan thinking, we need to group together. If you're not in our group, we can't trust you because you're not part of the group. Yeah, well, yeah. And also, I mean, maybe if you go back even further, it's like really comes to, you know, the, the clash of, of, of that, you know, because they're looking for food, they're looking for things, sustenance, this, that, and the other, and, and you know, you have these tribes that fight each other, and so different is not yeah. good. Every Often. time you run into somebody different, it's a chance that you're going to die. And, and America's progressed much more. I'm not saying oh, we, sure. we haven't made progress, but our racism is very subtle at these points. It's how Fox News speaks about situations and uses their words very carefully. Man, we're just name dropping all over the place tonight, but you know that's just <laughs> the way it is. That's the way it's going down apparently <laughs> on the first podcast. Awesome, for sure. I mean, so you know, let's you know, I don't want to go over the, the and make us sound like we're 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 talking about um, you know the 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 religion of Islam in a way that is you know completely derogatory. Look. We know that there are people out there and they live their lives, you know, and, and, and they're happy and they, they, they do, you know, follow it as the religion of peace, you know, that it means peace. So, but at the same time, we all know there's fringes and there's fringes of everything. I mean, there's fringes of, of you know, you could look at the same way about the intolerance right now and, and the things that it's not okay to talk about. Let's talk about the fact that See, Obama brings up the Crusades, right? And you have people in America acting like they didn't even exist. I mean, like, that it's not a correlation with what's going on in the Islamic world at the moment. And of course it is. The only difference is, is it's not clearly orchestrated from the central point, which is the church. I mean, gosh true. dang. I mean, you want to talk about something being... Very, very interesting when you talk about exactly what you were talking about before. Yeah, well, it's a unique situation because, like you said, it's not that people are innately violent or this or that. It's about these concentric circles of belief and how they support each other. And the problem is when you have critical thinking about illogical ideas, it leads to unexpected consequences. That's just a fact. When people start believing stories that aren't true for whatever reasons – even if they take away positives from them, they're committing to a way of thinking into how they get their ideas in their brain that is problematic. That's the ultimate argument being made against any religion at all by myself. It isn't that the ideas in the religion are necessarily bad. It's the thinking to get the ideas in your brain that opens up your mind to certain possibilities that wouldn't be there if you went under the assumption that you're not going to believe ideas that were written down historically that don't make any sense or have any scientific basis or proof 
And nowadays, if anyone claimed to know them or say them, they'd be declared a, a lunatic. And yet we found our world on these ideas. And to even question this to some people is so offensive, they won't have this conversation. They'll leave the room as soon as you start talking about it. But it's so important to me to bring that up because I think it's at the crux of the problem with the religious way of thinking. It, it ultimately is you have to have faith. Well, isn't communication like usually the crux of any problem? I mean, usually when you look back at it, it's communication. And if somebody's not willing to take a look at themselves and critically think about what they are, what their faith is, or what, you know, let's talk about it. In, let's bring it down to the individual, right? Like if an individual isn't, isn't willing um, to sit there and, and really think to themselves, who am I and what do I really believe in? Not what my parents taught me, not where I grew up, not these things. Would we have these, these same pockets that you speak of? And I would argue that we don't, we would not, because I think people would automatically be unique in their thinking and not be so rigid in, in, in what they believe the world is like, their perception. See, I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to have that conversation without having that fallback if that's where they get their beliefs from. Because then you'd have to be critically analyzing why you're doing everything you're doing. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's almost frightening for anyone, let alone somebody who doesn't like to think about these things. It's frightening for me at times to be overwhelmed by the complexity of the situation and how the most unimportant things have become the most important things in our lives. And it seems like it's a cycle that we're perpetuating and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Yet we all know it. That's why the craziest thing to me. We all know what we're doing isn't right and we should be able to fix it. And we should at least be able to have a conversation about it, if not fix it. Like, let's not maybe fix it right now, but let's talk about fixing it. And maybe down the road we can. But we can't even have that conversation. It's just under the assumption that everything is going down the right course and we all know where Lemming's walking right off the cliff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could just look at economy and talk about that. I mean, like, my God, like how many people do you meet on a daily basis that go to work and they hate their job? And I mean, this has been spoken about, you know, time and time again, over and over and over again, that, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, that we get up from our house, you know, and we, you know, wake up at a time that we don't want and we drive to a place and we do a thing and we, you know, have to medicate ourselves with caffeine or anything else, Adderall whatever to get through your day and then you get done with work and then you have to medicate yourself to sleep and then you get up and you do it all over again five days a week and this is happening all over the world and that's the only way to get ahead and now we're really getting into you know something that you're talking about i mean it's called well, we've, 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 sa we've sa we made a sacrifice right, right? It, it is a paradigm shift we've sacrificed standard of living for quality of life so our standard of living has gone way up. We've all got flat screen TVs and cars and all, the, and all this great stuff. But the quality of life, our ability to enjoy it, our ability to step back and, and see the fruits of our labor. The funniest thing is, is that what we've done is we've equated standard of living with quality, with quality of life. Yes, you're right. And that is all the, that's the measure. You know, and so it's your goal to have this Ferrari that you, you rarely drive because you're so busy at work and you don't want to take it to there. And you've got these three extra mansions that nobody lives in that sit there. Yeah. It, it's just an idea that's being perpetuated. And yet we all believe it'll be us, even though it can very rarely be even a few of us. We all think we'll be the ones to beat the house. Right. And I, and I would say that like through, you know, shows on, you know, VH1 or MTV, 
you know, that it's just getting worse that everybody believes that they can be celebrity and be rich. I mean, you got these super sweet 16 and these girls are throwing a fit because, you know, they got the wrong Mercedes for their 16th birthday and, and things like this. And, you know, so it really is it, it's driven home culturally and advertising becomes part of that, that nature of that, of what that is. But, you know, you know, we were talking about the Middle East, we're talking about ISIS and, and I don't want to stray too far off. Of that we already did. Way. We already did stray too far. All right. Let's do it. Kind of, let's you know, like well, once you're off the reservoir, I think you've just got to, let's go gotta, there. Got to go where we want. Let's went. go there. There's Pardon babies me. on the ceiling right now. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> we just went there, ladies and gentlemen. We just went there. Awesome. This podcast awesome. shifted from very serious we'll Middle East discussion to some, some real realness. Right, right. So, but we're devolving the material. We start in one place and we get to another. And then, you know, how we did that was basically by dissecting each and every uh, layer and really moving down through, um, you know, what it is on the surface and the, and the, and the things that we see. Um, on the, the, the pages of the websites and the links and, and across, uh, you know, videos on, on YouTube and everything else and uh, getting into a place where, you know, we're really talking about the social aspects of things and, and maybe, you know, the human side of things, as I would say. I mean, we're talking about humanity because when you get down to the base level of anything, it's humanity. And what we've done is we've actually lost that. And we've lost the fact that we're, we are nature and we don't live in nature. We are nature. And, and that, I think, really talks about the quality of life, right? That of standard course. of living, quality of life. And, and you look at any kind of you know, culture throughout history that has really, really been in tune with nature has been in a very, very peaceful place. Well, when you look at the way we've structured capitalist society, it's structured in a way where to be successful it's pitted us all against each other it really has so you, you know like whether or not you know it everyone's working against you. We're all, if you work a job with Susie as a cashier and you guys are both cashiers one of you is going to get promoted one of you is not one of you might get let go one of you is not you're competing for that job whether you realize it or not so there's no this idea of that you're working together as part of a community you're always competing. Even when you're working together, it's usually under idea of like a partnership or a limited liability corporation. Well, you are both benefiting from that partnership, which is the good thing, but if it's for the right reasons, right? Of like course. That's the, the key. I mean, it's good to communicate and to cooperate with your fellow man because I, that is the part of humanity that we have not left out when it talks about business. It's a way to communicate and we're able to work together to achieve a common goal. And that's something that's great. Um, but you know, I think what we're really getting into is the fact that a lot of that has been lost. A lot of that has been lost to the well, fact that I just want the boat, I want the biggest bank account. When we're forced to want... compete, it puts us in the mindset of, we need to put ourselves ahead at the betterment of ourselves ultimately. It's basically a way to feed our ego, right. whether we know it or not. So right. by needing to succeed over our fellow man in everything we do, we place ourselves above him. We're not as concerned about his doing well as we are about ourselves. And that's not to say self-interest isn't important. Right. And that's because, where the business project comes in you know, and they go. Self-interest is important. But the idea becomes when self-interest becomes the only thing that's important because the idea is by being interested in yourself, you'll help others. It promotes these values of greed and success at all costs and endless drive to just do nothing but work 
towards being successful in whatever cultural way resonates, whether it's the money or the flashy things or it's the pretty girls. So it's kind of warped society. You can see how it's resonated in that way, and those are the values that resonate in pop culture, are they not? Yeah, well, for sure, in pop culture. I mean, you're sitting there, and, and they, they perpetuate those ideals for sure. I mean, that is the way. I mean, nowadays, you can be you know uh, a celebrity without really having a talent. I mean, like if there's anything that shows you that you can market yourself just for being yourself and get, you know, notoriety for that and, and, and whatever it takes to get to the top type of mentality, that is it. That single, that single, uh, you know, kind of thought process where it's, you know, it's me, I'm going to make it, I'm going to step on everybody the way to the top. Uh, we're going to work in this group project, but we're, I'm going to make sure that I look better than you type of thing mentality instead of doing what what's good for us instead of what's good for the team. I mean, we see it all the time I and mean, you see it in sports. I mean, I think you, that's really the place where you see it the most um, because they have to work together to win. And it doesn't matter what superstar you have. You have a singular superstar, your chances of winning are slim to none unless maybe it's like Peyton Manning and like the Super Bowl. It didn't work out so well. Nah, yeah, well, he... he Mar Maradona, maybe, let's say that. Right, <laughs> right well, Mar he could just dribble through everybody, yeah. right? Maybe Messi, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, so that's that's really where we get and, to And this problem. isn't just to, like, be an attack on capitalism or anything like that, but just to bring up the question, what mindset does the system cultivate? And it's not to say capitalism is the wrong system. It seems to be working better than any other system we have, but how can we adapt it and improve it in ways where we're not so focused on the competition as a way to beat our fellow man, as to better him, as to make him strive to be better. And in the process of making him be better, we make ourselves better. Instead of let's make ourselves better at the betterment and cost of his success. You know, if we're more rooted in the success of each other, it's going to just improve everyone's well-being. We, right. can't, we, we can't believe that, you know, by us ourselves succeeding, that's how we're going to fix things. Now, because listen. not everybody can succeed. If we're all forced to compete then most of us are going to be losers. That's just a fact. So how can we compete in a way where the people who aren't winning are still coming out okay? Well, here's the thing, and that, this is what I was going to say, is that, like, you know, the problem is is that, you know, we're, we're, we're constricted. We're, there's constriction at the top, right? They're, they're choking off the innovation that's coming from, you know, let's say our generation, you know, the 30-somethings, the people that are right, you know, turning 30 into, like, their mid-30s type of, type of generation. You know, we kind of took out the raw end of the stick a little bit in 2008, you know, people don't really talk about it very much, but, you know, we were kind of, uh, you know, there was a point of time where out of all of our friends, I think that like four out of five of us were unemployed, you know what I'm saying? You aren't, you aren't kidding. It was dire, dire times and we tried starting our own businesses, multiple yes. of us, and how'd that work out for us? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of, you gotta have a lot of marketing dollars. Good idea, bad idea. It, the competition is fierce. Competition is fierce. The, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could pick any business right now, and the competition is so fierce. If you ever watch Shark Tank, it doesn't matter what the investor's going in. Unless they invented something and they're an inventor, it's the brand new thing that nobody else does. They always hear the same thing. Oh, the competition in this space is, fier is fierce. Every space. There's a lot of people in the there's, world. There's, there's 7 billion people and growing, and it's going to be 10 billion in a year or two. Right. So. Right. The competition's only going to keep increasing, which means so listen, the small but, pool of winners is going to keep 
becoming smaller in comparison to the group of losers. But really what ends up happening is that like you have these big, big corporations at the top, right? And they have a lot of money and they can make moves and they can squash, you know, innovation and those type of things. And we see it over and over again. And so what you're saying is, is like what I, the way to fix that would be for some sort of, and this is going to be crazy because you know, it's definitely a socialist ideal, but we're just talking here about these different ways to look at the world. And I think what you could do in a utopian society is like a profit share program in order to, you know, to, to, to disperse the money around, to give it to new, to new, uh, you know, businesses. And then that would be, that would be capitalism for the betterment of society, but we're unwilling to do that. And it shows all the time when you have education having such a poor, poor, um, you know, percentage of tax dollars. Well, of course, but there's a famous uh, graph chart where they did a, a survey and they asked people, they asked people where they thought things should lie on the income distribution. They asked them basically what percentage of people should be in the, should the 1% have of the wealth? Should the 1% have 50%? Should they have 40% should they have 30% and the interesting thing was they asked people what they wanted and it, at the bottom it had the people at the very bottom the people who were doing the the, not, the worst jobs not doing well it had them you know the poorest people possible it still gave them a decent percentage it wasn't too low and then it went on a steady smooth line and it gave the upper people it ended at around you know 30% that's where where people wanted it and then they asked people where they thought it was and it looked more like a little slight upward curve, like a wave at the beach, where it started at the same point for the poor people, but they thought it curved up more. They thought that on the bottom, people were actually poorer in the middle class than they wanted it to be, and they were slightly richer. They were like twice as rich. So it went from being a nice smooth triangle to a big wave. And then they showed people what it really was. And it looks like a wave in the movie Interstellar. <laughs> And this isn't an exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen. They had to make a new graph to add it to the original graph because it was so high. They had to make a new separate graph and make new space right to it and add a new legend to it because it went so high for the 1%. We're working on an exponential level of wealth where the fixed people at the top, their goal was to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And the more wealth you have, the easier it is to accumulate. That's why we're seeing more multimillionaires and billionaires, yet a greater percentage of poor people. Because mm -hmm. there's a fixed amount of resources and money to be earned and so if you create this class where it becomes easier and simpler for rich people to aggregate wealth and they're incentivized to do it under yeah. the drive of greed and self-betterment, self-improvement, you have a situation where literally it's only going to exponentially increase more and more until the system collapses. Because literally this is a fixed graph. It's going to keep going up every year more and more for the top people. They're going to keep doing better. The top 10% of people will always keep doing better until the system well, collapses. Well, makes money. Right? I mean, that's the deal. The system's fixed for them. Yeah. It's impossible for them to lose money. They only keep gaining. You, there's, there's certain cases, so-and-so invested with Bernie Madoff. These are anecdotes. Yeah. These yeah. are anecdotes. For sure. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. And on the most part, most multimillionaires and billionaires are doing great and have been doing great. But, what do you, but then what do you get? The interesting thing is, is that as the, as the wealth gets um, held by a smaller group, the poor actually grows... So that's the interesting factor in this whole game that the, the poor, it, it's, not, it's not a trickle-down effect. Well, the, the idea are, is, right, 
always the famous Reagan thing thrown a rising tide raises all boats. The trickle-down economics effect that we know has been proven time and time again. But if it's working... But here's the thing. If people are aggregating wealth, it isn't getting disseminated to the people as they think it is. The, the idea is that now that this guy's a billionaire, he's going to be opening new plants and hiring new workers and buying things and new companies. Not necessarily. It might not work for him. Right. He might be like Mitt right. Romney, and it's his goal to remove jobs to earn money. Right. And right. that's not to say that Mitt Romney didn't do a good job. He did a great job. But he was hired to do a certain task, and he was great at it. What's interesting is that we've actually like really brought this all the way around here. I mean, we talked about ISIS and the fact that we thought that they were um, – you know, it was a socioeconomic problem at its root. That is the fact that these people have a couple of yeah. There's there's a broad spread problem of religious violence with the Islamic community. Yet it's only resonating in the ones which have the lowest socioeconomic standings right now. Exactly, exactly. And so it's proving that when you marginalize and you oppress and you give people no hope that it is a fight or flight response. I mean, you're pushing somebody into a corner monetarily and that's really what's going on. And then when you have a closed society that is, you know, unwilling to, uh, to, you know, assimilate and to, uh, to get into a, 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 another culture, it, it closes the, the way of thinking and they're not able to step outside of that religion and reflect upon how maybe it should change and evolve in the modern day world. I think you're right. I mean, uh, for a note to close on for myself, I think we should wrap this up soon. You know, we shouldn't put ourselves into ethnocentric of a perspective about this. This is a war that's been going on inside of a culture and a religion in hundreds of societies and dozens of countries. And we have nothing to do with it. We're a bit player. No matter what we do, whether we pull out of Iraq or whether we stay there, this war is still going to be going on. So no matter what, we still have a role to play in it and how we're going to try to culturally influence these people in the right way to re-examine their extremist beliefs to some degree and what, what's generating those beliefs. But it's not about us, okay? It's really about them. So we shouldn't put ourselves in the shoes of just this is what, what, what are we going to do. We need everybody to help on this. We need the Muslim world to help. We need the whole world to help. It can't just be us. You can't make somebody do something at the barrel of the gun or even have everybody in the community force them to do it at the barrel of the gun. Everyone in the community has to help that person want to do it. That's how you do it in a small society. If one person was acting out, being out of line, being a criminal, first the parents would try to help them, which should be the country itself. If that didn't work, then the neighbors do. If that doesn't work, the whole town does it. And if that doesn't work, well, maybe it's time to, you know, Send that kid out of town. Call it quits. Call it quits. Adios, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us on the Material Devolution Podcast. We'll be back every week, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Good night.